Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about an extremely important medieval Muslim philosopher. His name was Shahabuddin Yahya Surhavadin, but he was better known to his followers over the following centuries as a Sheikh al-Ishlaq, the master of illumination. <laughs> As his name suggests, Sohravadi was from the village of Sohravad in what's now northwestern Iran, where he was born around 1154. There were a good many other famous Sohravadis. It was a very uh, uh, auspicious town insofar as it produced a number of famous Sufis and mystics. But this Sohravadi was drawn primarily, or at least initially, to philosophy in the Greek Aristotelian tradition, particularly as expounded by the great Islamic Persian philosopher Ibn Sina, known in the West as Avicenna, who died in 1037, a century or so before Sohravadi's birth. But as Sohravadi continued with his philosophical and indeed his mystical path, he came to develop a form of philosophy that was beyond the rationalism of Ibn Sina and the Aristotelian tradition. That form of philosophy was known as Hikmat al-Ishraq, which can be translated in a number of ways. But one of the most standard translations is the wisdom of Eastern illumination. Ishraq means the rising sun or the place of the rising sun in the Shark, the East. A metaphor that sort of had carried on through his philosophical writings in very dense Arabic in many thousands of pages with the notion of the experience of the light of the divine presence at the core of the universe rising on the edge of our being to illuminate the entirety of our conscience, our consciousness and our experience of life, the universe and everything. Epistemology then how we know what we know, how we seek true knowledge, was at the core of Suravadi's philosophy, as expounded in his many Arabic works. Over the next hour, we'll be exploring Suravadi's life, thought, and the impact and the legacy of his ideas. Leading me in this conversation is John Welbridge, who is a professor in the Department of Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures at the University of Indiana at Bloomington. He's the author, among many other works and translations of Suravadi's Arabic writings, of a key text entitled God and Logic in Islam, which is published by Cambridge University Press in 2010. <laughs> Hello, John. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Well, thank you, Niall. It's lovely to be here. Well, I'm so glad you could uh, could make it, John, because we're going to be talking today about the fascinating figure called, well, to a shorter, somewhat shorter version of a very long name, Shahabuddin Yahya Asuravadi, often known as the Sheikh al-Ishraq, the master of Eastern illumination. And it's politically, sorry, politically, particularly fascinating to me because many years ago I wrote my master's dissertation on him but he's been fascinating for many many other people over the best part of uh, I suppose what 800 years 900 years since uh, since he died because of the sheer profundity the sheer wealth the sheer richness and the sheer coherence and systematization of his philosophical or as you might call it his theosophical vision that he's a 
influenced many Sufis, but he is a philosopher, a mystical philosopher, and indeed a, a Muslim philosopher, which I suppose is might something we might sort of unpack that that issue later on uh, as we kind of think about how to categorize sort of Adi. But to start us off, John, let's let's set him in sort of his time and place. So can you tell us who was Suhravadi and what were the key influences that shaped his life and thought? Well, um, he can be thought of in three ways. First of all, as you said, um, he was a major philosopher um, with substantial influence. Uh, secondly, he was a mystic, a Sufi in uh, Islamic terms. And third, he was a really, really interesting person. So I will perhaps start with the last. Uh, he was born in northwestern Iran, um, probably around uh, the mid-1150s, which makes him roughly the same age as Richard the Lionhearted, who will reappear eventually. Um, he might have been a Kurd or he might have been a Persian. Uh, the Kurds like to claim him today, as do the Persians. Um, he probably came from a Sufi family, a family of, of mystics, just to judge from his writings. We know that he studied in northwestern Iran in a nearby um, city and then studied in Isfahan and um, central Iran. Uh, after that, he became a sort of wandering uh, monk in eastern and central Turkey and in Syria, perhaps in Iraq. We don't know for sure. He wrote a lot. Um, the best list we have lists over 50 works, of which we have maybe half, uh, although we probably have the major ones. Um, the new edition of his, collected edition of his works is coming out, will probably be something on the order of 12,000 pages. So the man was busy. Uh, most of these things were on philosophy, but they were also um, works on Islamic law, uh, mysticism, magic, and some poetry. Everybody in the Islamic world wrote poetry. Um, and he was clearly something of a character. Um, the story I commonly tell um, has to do with his arrival in the Syrian city of Aleppo. When he showed up at a madrasa, a, a basically a an Islamic college uh, dressed in very shabby uh, dervish clothing. The director of this madrasa uh, tactfully sent his 12-year-old son with a set of decent clothes, assuming that this guy was uh, uh, simply poor, because he was obviously educated. Um, so Hawardi apparently was deeply offended and handed uh, the boy, a large Badakhshan ruby, a semi-precious stone of some sort that apparently he had produced by alchemy, uh -huh. and told the boy, go to the market and get a price for it. And the uh, boy took it to a jeweler who looked, took one look at it and said, I have to offer this first to the prince governor of the town. So the bid came back of 30,000 dirhams, a dirham being about a day's wage for a laborer. And so Hawardi then put the thing on the floor, took a stone and smashed it and said, if I needed money, I could get it. Um, so on another occasion, uh, he was with his disciples and uh, needed to buy a donkey. And so um, he was talking to a donkey seller who was asking an unreasonably large price. So Sohrawardi started to walk away and uh, the donkey seller grabbed Sohrawardi's arm, which came off and blood shot all over the place. <laughs> the poor man ran away screaming. And then when his uh, uh, disciples looked back, the arm was where it was supposed to be and all was well. So a uh, bit of reputation as a bit of a magician. At any rate, um, he Toward the end of his life, um, probably in the 1180s, he uh, came to the attention of the Prince Governor of Aleppo, 
who was the son of the famous King Saladin. Um, and um, apparently the prince fell somewhat under his influence. Um, this alarmed uh, Saladin, who at that point was dealing, had just uh, retaken Jerusalem from the Crusaders and now was facing the Christian counterattack led by people like Richard Lionheart. I said he'd come up again. Mm -hmm. uh, Aleppo was a town of great strategic importance, having his son under the influence of this very dubious character seemed a bad idea. So he ordered Sohrawardi executed. Uh, so uh, Sohrawardi uh, was killed at roughly the age of 37. We don't know exactly, so we don't know when he was born, uh, which gives him yet another title, uh, a Sheikh al-Maktoul, the murdered Sheikh. So that is Sohrawardi. <laughs> But they've given us a really sort of yeah fascinating sense, John, of of of, of the man himself, really. And I, I must say, sort of more of a, a an interesting character than than you know, kind of I, I myself expected from you know, in a sense, kind of reading reading his his uh, well, I suppose what very serious, very profound, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't say very kind of humorous uh, works. And and I think that that sort of context you you set him into, and, and uh, amid the the particularly in in Aleppo, where he ends up being having the patronage of of, of uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Saladin's son, and the ruler who's the ruler of Aleppo, but also being mixed up in in the sort of the politics on the ground between the the Crusader the defeat of the Crusaders, the Crusader kind of counter response, and indeed the the local politics, presumably of the local Islamic religious elites and the establishment, so to speak, of of, uh, of Aleppo and this outsider who seems to be somewhat unrespectable, not only in, in his dress, but perhaps in his ideas. And then this sort of almost this paradox of various kind of key figures, particularly around, I suppose, the Middle Ages in the Islamic world and particularly in, around the Sufi tradition who are executed in their own time and yet seem to have enormous sort of subsequent legacies, something we'll return to later in our discussion, and be taught at perhaps often some of the, you know, the most respectable uh, religious colleges in later centuries. So he's a, a really interesting character in that way. And, and not least that, as you sort of mentioned, he he dies very young at the age of 37, or is, a, is executed very young, I should say, at the age of 37, at the oldest. But we really want to talk about his his ideas and the, the text, these writings that those ideas are embedded in, partly in Persian, but mostly in, in Arabic, the, the language then of kind of high, kind of Sufi theoretical and, philosoph and, and philosophical writing in this time. So can you give us uh, then, John, an, an outline of perhaps the development of sort of his ideas and, and indeed his, his writings, you know, in which those ideas were formulated? Sure. Um... The first thing to know is that um, there are several categories of his writings, and you know, and one of the big problems with him is figuring out how they're interrelated. Um, there are some works in Persian, including some quite lovely um, allegories. Uh, but for philosophers, the interesting thing is um, um, one set of works, and then another work that's he's most famous for. So what he's most famous for is a book called The Philosophy of Illumination, which gives a kind of metaphysics in which uh, uh, the concept of light is the key uh, key thing. So if you are a proper Sarawardian, you will know that your soul is an incorporeal light, you know, as is God, as are the angels, and so on. Um, but there also a, as a much larger body of work that uh, he referred to as peripatetic, uh, mostly three major works. Um, peripatetic in this context means uh, Aristotelian as interpreted by Avicenna. Uh, so the first clue is how to see how these things are related is that uh, Sohrawardi tells us in the philosophy of illumination that he originally was trained as a 
peripatetic, a follower of Avicenna. Uh, but then he was converted to Platonism um, through uh, a dream in which Aristotle appeared to him and told him that, you know, the real truth is with Plato and not only with Plato, but with uh, uh, some other rather disreputable Islamic mystics. <laughs> and it's worth noting for listener John, that the, the Plato and especially Aristotle were, were kind of in, in translation and, and indeed texts that were thought to be Aristotle, but often Aristotelian or sometimes more confusing Neoplatonic works. But these were figures with their Arabized names whose works and and whose personae, I guess, were really kind of crucial for medieval Muslim thinkers not least the one you've mentioned, Ibn Sina Avicenna dies in 1037, who is the perhaps the, the most such a crucial exponent of Aristotelian thought that he's taught in Oxford till I think the 17th century. Sure, sure. And, and Avicenna is in fact a really good commentator on Aristotle, if you want to read him that way. Um, but the odd thing is that uh, what Sohrani tells us is that uh, if you really want to do philosophy properly, you need to do both rational philosophy, by which he means philosophy in the Avicenna style, and then intuitive philosophy, which is what he says he is explaining in uh, the philosophy of illumination. You should also, as I tell my students when I teach that book, you need to have fasted 40 days before you start reading it, <laughs> uh, which Mostly they don't do. Um, but uh, the it's it's tricky to know how these how these fit together. Um, the natural thing to suppose would be that uh, he wrote these Aristotelian works and then he had his dream and then he he went on to write the philosophy of illumination. Um, but that is clearly not the case. I mean, there are some, some works that are obviously early, but the big works were written in parallel with the philosophy of illumination and their references back and forth uh, between them that uh, clearly show that. So we have to figure out how these, these things fit together. And um, there are, you know, several younger scholars who are beginning to really sort of crack this riddle, write books that uh, I sort of thought I would like to write and never got around to. Uh, so that's that's the issue. And then there's other stuff. Um, so there are these Persian allegories, which are essentially introductions to mysticism, most of them in Persian. Um, and a lot of people think these are the sort of um, highest part of Sohrawardi's philosophy. I don't actually think so. I think they were written when he was young, but that's a rather technical debate. And then there's other stuff. So there's a young scholar in uh, Poland named Lukasz Piotek, uh, who has written a massive dissertation on Sohrawardi's magical works, you know, things, mostly their prayers for if you want to have a conversation with the souls of the planets, that kind of thing, what you have to do with it, uh, prayer you have to recite, and so on. So it's uh, an interesting uh, mix. And there we get this, yeah, this, this sense that he uh, has a very sort of broad range, I suppose, of interest. But again, there is that coherence of them, isn't there? Because, of course, in in medieval thought, there was no distinction between medieval Christian European thought and medieval Islamic thought. There wasn't that hard distinction between astrology and astronomy. So his interest there is much scientific as, let's say, kind of mystical, where you're talking about planets and the influences of planets as, in a sense, kind of, I don't know, kind of cosmic beings, not just, let's say, lumps of rock. And indeed, he has these interests in ophthalmology, don't they, which might seem just like purely medical. And indeed, uh, Ibn Sina yeah. taught on... On, on medicine as well, hence, you know, question division of afterlife. Question division so, is a little tricky. Um, uh, and I push back against what you have to say about scientific interest, because he's not really doing science. Mm, right. Well, other, other philosophers did. So Avicenna uh, was a major 
authority on medicine, for instance. Um, I did my dissertation on someone who was a commentator on Soharlardi, but also an astronomer and a, uh, a trained physician. So, but Soharlardi was mostly, his outside interests were, were the occult and mysticism. Right. And, and and it does so yeah so there is this then yeah as you as you're leading towards this kind of coherence in his ideas I mean from what I recall about his his writing on the iron ophthalmology I mean this is sort of interesting in in light isn't it and how whether light comes out of the eye or into the eye and then his notion I think was light came out because we are as you mentioned the sort of early beings of light and this notion of light which we'll come back to no doubt much more fully is really at the center of even this this name for his philosophy, which we're calling the philosophy of illumination, and this term Ishraq in the, the Arabic, this is the, the rising sun of the East, isn't it? So there's all these other translations. You've, 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 I'm glad you've chosen the, the one that is most perhaps intelligible to us in English, but this philosophy or wisdom of oriental illumination, this notion of the sun rising on the eastern horizons of our soul or so on, which is coming back to the, the crucial ontological and an epistemological importance of, of light for sort of others to say the importance of light as the the basis of our being and then as the basis of of knowledge so as we start to you know move towards then some of the the ideas that are in those books of his should we focus on a, a couple of those key concepts of his philosophy john i don't know if you want to talk more about light uh you know since sure. i've sort of you know thrown in my tuppence worth there and but you know, and then perhaps we'll also go on to talk about these other key ideas of, of Khayal, John Gloss's imagination, and the Alan al Mithal, the, the world of, of images, and which is also sort of a another uh, a key part of his notion of both being and knowledge. All right, well, why don't I start with light or more generally a concept that's um generally referred to as knowledge by presence. Um, to some extent, Sohrawardi seems to have been kind of a critic of the existing theories of vision. Uh, there were two. One is that something went out from your eye and touched what you were seeing, and the other was that uh, something came in from the things you were looking at, and you saw them that way. And both of, both of them seem to have problems. Um, you know, like how could the first one, how could your eye reach out and touch the touch the stars instantaneously, you know, across the half the sphere of heaven? Um, the other one, it's just exactly what is coming into, if you're looking at a mountain, what's coming into your eye? Um, so Sohrawardi basically tried to really simplify this. Um, he said, uh, vision is the unveiled presence of the thing um, in front of a sound eye. So uh, when I'm looking at at Nile, leaving aside the computer screen, mm -hmm. uh, my eyes are functioning and um, there is nothing between me and, well, anyway, the screen that he's on. And that is sufficient for, uh, for seeing. Uh, he doesn't think anything comes back and forth uh, between them. Now, if you look at theories of knowledge that philosophers produce, they tend to be uh, based on unconsciously or not on uh, vision. You don't, for instance, very often have a philosopher basing a theory of knowledge on smell, for instance. <laughs> right. Um, so he says that this basically applies to other sorts of knowledge. Um, and he's a mystic. So um, essentially what he's saying is if you train yourself properly, you can see the spiritual beings in some sense, special sense of seeing. Um, you just have to know how to look at them. It's kind of like how an artist learns to see perspective uh, kind, kind of training. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he, he talks about this uh, process as, um, in terms of light. So uh, 
the soul, um, the human being or an angel or God, is a what he calls an incorporeal light, an, an, an immaterial light. And its characteristic is that light is that which can be seen and which makes other things visible. So for him, that's how, how the mind works. You know, we reach things are visible to us when we learn how to see them. So he then takes this on and um, uses it as a philosophical method. So uh, he says that essentially um, how a uh, an illuminationist philosopher works is that by his mystical training, he is able to sort of see the lay of the land. And then when he returns from his mystical state, then he settles down with his uh, logical proofs and so forth to to explain it. So this takes us back, John, to to that point you were making earlier, that sort of aside you made, which which I, I thought was really very interesting about the the 40 days of fasting that were recommended before reading the book, because this as you mentioned, he's a mystic. And, and I suppose what we, we mean by this is that that there are sort of, if we go to the core of his epistemology, as you'll unpack for us, this idea of, as you said, of knowledge by presence, elemi huzuri, that, that, that we, we know in a more intuitive, mystical way, and not only through ratiocination, through logic, through the Aristotelian methods. And so even reading a book, if you want to really understand the teachings in his book of philosophy of illumination, you need the kind of physical preparation to prepare, I suppose, the the, the body qua soul, or the soul and the, the mind, I suppose, through through the body. Yes, that's, that's quite true. And um, in a way, he's not, he's not unique in this. The uh, mysticism has become a very, very major thing in the Islamic world in his time. And it remains so really, you know, up, up until the modern, modern time. So it is a question for philosophers, what do you do with mysticism? And for uh, Sahrawardi, it is a tool to use in doing philosophy. And he does indeed do philosophy. It's not just uh, sort of sitting, sitting around fasting and making snarky remarks about people like Avicenna. Mm -hmm. And, and, and there it is then, John, I mean, that, that, that's such a, a kind of key point, one of the things that makes him so really, truly significant, because, as you mentioned, he does a bit of poetry, like everyone else, but he's not a figure like Rumi, great as Rumi is, uh, nor is he a, a figure like Avicenna, let's say, sort of, he's not just, to say, just the mystic, nor indeed just the philosopher, and he's trying to, in a sense, I don't know if you would agree with this, but in a sense, you're trying to philosophize or generate a philosophical system out of mystical experience and that philosophical system, those writings, very coherent, very, in a sense, logical in their exposition, but they're based upon the kind of, uh, uh, not so much a presupposition, but a pre-experience, I suppose, of, of, of experience then of actually kind of generating uh, the knowledge that then can be written about, but you can't actually have the true knowledge without the experience, which I suppose takes us to his epistemology. But before we get to that, perhaps those few other terms then beyond the centrality of light, of nur, that you were talking about there. There's these two concepts of, of hayal, imagination, but not as we know it, I suppose, <laughs> nowadays in English, and the alami mathal, the, the world of, of images, I suppose, is the easiest way to translate it. Could you sort of unpack those for us and how they work for him in his, sure. his teachings? Sure. Um, in sort of standard Aristotelian, Abyssinian, um Psychology, imagination is what happens when you have gotten images from the world through your senses, and then you can play with them. I mean, so you can uh, um, think of purple cows and such things that you've never actually seen, or uh, uh, picture the route that you're going to use to get home from work, or you know, any of these kind of things. Um, that's not really what uh, he's doing. The um, there, there's a problem that he is dealing with, which is that um, in the sort of Aristotelian world, 
uh, things are material that has form. So, you know, a statue is bronze, it has a shape. The difficulty um, is what do you do with things that don't fit that model? And a very simple example is a mirror. Mm. Okay, so, you know, if Niall and I were standing next to each other looking in a mirror, we would see slightly different images. So you could not sort of take apart the mirror and find, you know, one unique image. Whereas if we're looking at a statue, it's just that statue. Mm. Um, so what he does is he comes up with a notion that um, um, you can have images that are not in matter exactly, but are in some sense linked to matter. So like the the uh, images that Nile and I would see in, in the mirror. And then that can be used to explain all sorts of other things that were kind of problematic. Um, um, so dreams, um, things that are summoned up by magic, uh, uh, the events of the Day of Resurrection and the Last Judgment, um, uh, what happens to people who um, are not philosophers or so are not keen on becoming uh, immaterial minds after death, uh, you know, but sort of wish to, you know, have their bodies back. Uh, so uh, this idea is used for this. Now, mind you, Sohrawardi does not develop all of these things in, in detail, but uh, um, later on, other uh, philosophers seize on this, the so-called so fourth realm of, of being. And a student whose dissertation committee I was on traced the concept through dozens and dozens of philosophers and theologians and so forth from then on. He's better than, with computers than I am. Uh, so that's, you know, that's an important, uh, important concept. So we have this then, yeah, I mean, you've mentioned that the dreams came up briefly and we actually had an Akbos Chamber just recently on dreams. And, and again, it's sort of, I think it's worth sort of, uh, dwelling here for for a moment or two uh, as with imagination that what we think of a dream is imagination the, these are almost if we're looking now for serious knowledge well we say okay forget that that's imagination and certainly forget those dreams um and perhaps looking in a mirror is not going to perhaps help you perhaps unless in a sort of beginning of a philosophy class or something is the beginnings but uh, but but the, these elements particularly a, a dream and imagination these are a, a profoundly important mode of mode of our being and therefore sort of mode of our knowledge and indeed a mode of being that actually transcends i suppose the individual consciousness the individual being the world of visible experience that we've been talking about the physical realm of visible experience in an aristotelian sense and knowledge therefrom and then it actually takes us through imagination into this larger kind of cosmic world in a sense of past time a future time um of knowledge of people one might actually meet who were who were dead, whether earlier prophets or philosophers or others, as as this notion of a dream or or rather imagination and dreams or indeed waking visions as part of that as modes of entering as an individual this alami mythal this world of ideas where and correct me if I'm wrong here John but the sense that all all things that were will be could be and indeed beings that were. You know, so existence, you know, I suppose. And I'm struggling for the philosophical terms here. But, you know, anything that existed in past, future, or maybe, you know, kind of theoretically, could be found there. So this is a really important place of knowledge. This isn't, oh, imagination, forget that. That's not going to help you know about life, the cosmos, and everything. Yeah, it's a bit of a metaphysical attic, to be sure, where all sorts of... Um odd phenomena are explained. And it's not necessarily someplace else because uh, you can have contact with the uh, Alam al-Mithal in all sorts of ways in uh, this world. But, uh, you know, now when you talk about 
dreams. I mean, everybody but us rationalist modern knows that moderns know that dreams are are meaningful. And so, you know, the medieval Muslims did know that, uh, you know, some dreams came from eating too much spicy food before before bed, but uh, everybody believed in uh, in true dreams. So they were a serious subject for philosophers to uh, to explain. Um, and with other things like mir miracles of prophets and so forth. So this, this becomes um, really important. As I said, Sahrawardi did not develop this and you know, in the elaborate way that happened in later centuries, but it was a basic philosophical concept that he put into uh, into uh, circulation. Yeah, and and this is it, isn't it? I mean, the the, the going back to the, the that point earlier that he is a, a mystical philosopher, but also a Muslim philosopher, and so many of these key ideas that he is developing or having there and there perhaps as a sort of sense of tacit knowledge among his audience the significance of dreams is is again there's the famous hadith saying of the prophet muhammad prophet that a dream is 146 part of prophecy sort of a famous hadith or indeed the notion of light of course is the the the, the light chapter and, and the called light verse the ayat of nur the light chapter and the light verse of the quran so these are kind of you know profoundly basic Islamic ideas then, the sort of ideas exploring experientially as a mystic, and then sort of explaining then in, in his, uh, mostly, and I guess in his Arabic sort of works of exposition. And so as we sort of move on then, I guess, kind of from those, those kind of core ideas of light, imagination, the world of ideas, it brings us then, I suppose, to the heart of sort of Adi's writing then, which is this uh, the issue of epistemology, the nature of true knowledge. And indeed, then the question for all epistemologists, I suppose, any time, how we get to true knowledge. So can you talk us through uh, his uh, his model of, uh, of knowledge? OK, so we talk about his epistemology. It's in some ways uh, very simple. You know what is true by basically seeing it and you can um see it um with the aid of a lot of sort of mystical preparation or you can um you can learn it by rational means and more to the point you understand it by rational means so Sohrawardi probably wrote four or five times as much uh, about rational philosophy as he did about mystical philosophy. And as I said, this is something that uh, we're trying to figure out the relationship mm. uh, between. But he was very much a philosopher. At the moment, I'm revising a translation of one of these so-called peripatetic works, and it is not easy going. I mean, I'm plowing through very complicated discussions about logic and uh, semantics and so forth and tearing my hair out at points. Gosh, and people so, think translating Kant from German is difficult. So. <laughs> well, I mean, at least it's in the general tradition of Greek philosophers. So there's most of the time there are words available, but it can be difficult. Um, but he's, um, I said, he's got some basic ideas about metaphysics that in some ways are at least as important as his ideas about uh, epistemology. So the basic problem goes back as in virtually everything in Islamic philosophy to Avicenna. So Avicenna, when he starts his metaphysics says basically, uh, to put it more simply than he would approve of, uh, if you have something, um, you can ask two things about it. You can ask, what is it? And does it exist? So um, um, we can ask, you know, of me, uh, what am I? Well, I'm a human being. I'm a rational animal. Use the example everybody uses. Um, and I have existence. Now, my twin brother is 
also a rational animal, um, with the main exception being that he does not have existence. Okay, so um, this actually clarifies things some things nicely in Aristotle, but um, Sohrawardi chews into this um, with some basic criticism. Okay, what it sounds like to him is that um, ontology, you know, the science of being, is kind of like making a cake. You know, you buy your box of cake mix at the store, and you add water, <coughs> and uh, uh, cook it, and you get a cake. So, um, you know, Sohrawardi is kind of asking, okay, um, so do we take um, uh, a, in essence, or quiddity is a technical term, the what isness, what it isness of something, and then we add existence to it, you know, like we're adding water to the cake mix, and that gives us a real thing. Uh -huh. And then he proceeds to so show the absurdity of this. Okay, um, you know, um, so if something is the existence and quiddity, then you know the quiddity itself must have existence separate from the existence that makes it exist a thing, and the existence must have existence or. Um, you know, perhaps it has equity as well. And this, this goes on, um, can go on indefinitely. Uh, Soho already loves those kind of arguments. Um, so um, what does, uh, where do you go with that? Um, well, Soho view, as near as I can figure out, is that um, those ideas like existence are basically um, ideas that our mind uses to think about things. They are what the logicians uh, called secondary intelligibles, what he called etibaradaklia, which is most recently I've called beings of reason, but I've never found a satisfactory translation. Um, so that includes things like existence, necessity, um, quiddity in general, uh, as opposed to the quiddity of a particular thing, and so on. And um, he thinks these things do not have reality outside the mind. Now, mind you, you can use them to say things that are true or false. So, you know, you can say, I have existence, which is true. My twin brother does not have existence, which is also true. Uh, but they're still just tools that the mind has come up with to uh, think about things. Um, and my understanding of Sohrawardi is that he says um, the universe is just made up of individual things. Okay? Now, some of these things are material things. Some of these things are spiritual things like um, uh, angels or souls or God, um, which in the philosophy of illumination he calls uh, incorporeal lights, but they are uh, individual things. There, there isn't a, a substratum of something else that they're all sort of made out of. Um, now, when later Islamic philosophers read this, and they, they read it uh, seriously, because these books were, were copied. I've spent a lot of time collecting information on the manuscripts, and um, Sohrawardi's books were heavily studied. There are hundreds of manuscripts. Mm. Um, and most of the manuscripts have to do with the more philosophical things. Um, and even the philosophy of illumination, for instance, is most commonly copied as part of a commentary, um, which interprets it in Avicenna and sort of rationalist terms. Mm -hmm. So um, what happened is the later Islamic philosophers looked at this and said, uh, this guy has a point. So how do we deal with this problem? Didn't mean they agreed with Sarkawardi about his solution, uh, but they 
realized there was a problem that they had to, but okay, so what is existence? Um, you know, what kind of things is the universe made out of? Um, so later on, this gets defined in particularly the Iranian tradition of philosophy as a dispute between what's called the primacy of existence uh, versus the primacy of essence or primacy of quiddity. So um, basically, you know, these are rival approaches saying, okay, you've got You've obviously got existence because things exist. You've obviously got essence because things are something in particular. Um, you know, I am different from my dog Amelia. Um, so which one is real and which one is a product of mind? So for Sohawardi, it's the form because he thinks that the world's made up of individuals. Well, concrete in the sense that they're real. Um, others said, no, 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 you've got that completely wrong. Um, there's the separate things are in a way an illusion. What's real is existence, it can be undifferentiated. And, you know, they talk about things like um, the things of this world or like the waves on the sea and so on that are only real in the sense that uh, they're part of this sort of underlying ocean. And this this dispute is going on to this day in Iran. Um, the dominant view among the traditional philosophers there at the moment is the primacy of existence. So the older brother of Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader, um, runs an institute devoted to the works of a man named Mulasadra, who's an early 17th century philosopher who was a the most important uh, advocate of the primacy of existence. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so it's uh, it remains uh, an issue. It actually uh, was an issue in European philosophy, although not through Sarkawardi. Um, so Thomas Aquinas uh, talked about whether uh, existence was an accident, uh, which creates the, which would create exactly the same kind of problems that Zuckerberg would identify. John, I think you mean accident, presumably in the philosophical sense, that like a, is it an attribute, not an accident as in a mistake? Is it just no, not not a mistake. I mean, um, accident in the sense that um, the fact that my hair is um in need of a haircut is not an essential feature of me right. whereas rational or animal is an essential feature of me yeah well yeah and, and as you if you as you pointed out these are, are really i mean the nature of being what is existence i mean there is no more fundamental question in philosophy than that is there and as you've mentioned i mean western philosophy the of course we, we think of existentialist primarily as being i suppose 20th century Frenchman smoking gouloirs in, uh, in, in on the left bank of Paris, but of course these are different traditions, but nonetheless of different traditions in the Islamic world that have continued through to the present day to be looking at these two basic and I suppose fundamental or foundational approaches to existence, which is as you mentioned, existentialist or existential or or essentialist, which is that existence precedes essence or, or essence precedes existence, but the primacy of one or the other. I wonder if we could return a little bit to his uh, sort of his epistemology there, and, and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about these two modes of knowledge that uh, that he was known for in his writings. al Huzuri, knowledge by presence, I suppose, a, a, a literal translation, and al Husuri, so acquired knowledge, you know, perhaps a poor translation. But if you could talk us through what these are and and how they kind of line up and in in his uh his understanding of how we know what we know sure um you know you know imagine you are trying to uh find your way from the top of a mountain back down to the hotel you're staying in right um 
you've got a couple of options. Now, suppose there is a lot of fog. Uh, you're going to look at your map. You're going to look at your compass. You're going to argue with your wife about whether we took this path or that path. Um, and with considerable labor, you might find your way eventually back to where you were staying, you know, tired, dirty, and hungry. Um, alternatively, you can be up there and uh, the fog clears and you look and you see, okay, there's the place. I mean, you know, obviously this is the path we have to take. And um, you find your way down easily and you <clears throat> might, having seen what direction your hotel lies, you look at your map and uh, make sure you understand the exact path. Um, it's very much easier. <clears throat> this is kind of what uh, Sarhawardi was saying. For most people, <clears throat> the um, uh, uh, path, um, you know, looking at the map through and making your way through the fog is the best they can do. Uh, however, uh, Okay, however, for him, I think most people are stuck with the fog and map option. Mm -hmm. And so they have to, if they're going to find truth about important things, and he's talking about philosophers and so forth, they're going to have to do it using this laborious uh, path of reason, which is full of potential errors. Um, but um, if you have the uh, proper mystical attainment, uh, the fog clears, you can see where you're going, uh, you know what the answer is, you just have to go back and explain it and work out the details and, you know, explain to your potential readers where they, where they have gone wrong. And it's all very much clearer. Um, this actually raises a, uh, you know, an interesting larger question about science in the Islamic world. Uh, an old friend of mine who now has passed on to what I think is a good reward uh, was a historian of medieval science. And he wanted to know why the scientific revolution didn't occur in the Islamic world. Um, after all, the Islamic world was richer, um, more stable, and had gotten the same Greek books that the Europeans used, mm. uh, had gotten them some centuries earlier than the Europeans had. In fact, to some extent, the Europeans got them from the Muslims. Um, he didn't have a good answer for that. Uh -huh. But I think one of the, one of the issues is that um, for the Muslims, mysticism became a huge issue. And um, uh, so the best minds pursued that. Uh, if you're going to find the ultimate truths about reality, being able to personally experience the divine sounds like a better path than, um, let us say, being able to mathematically calculate the, the uh, path of cannonballs. Um, now, obviously, the latter turned out to have great advantages for the Western world, but uh, there are still people in the Islamic world who say, no, you were wrong. Uh, uh, it's the uh, you know mystical investigation of reality, which is the real path you should be pursuing, which is something that Sarhawardi would would agree on. But pretty much every major figure after him is dealing seriously with mysticism. Um, they were dealing with it to some extent earlier, and Avicenna talks about it a little bit. But uh, uh, it is the base problem. Uh, that Muslim philosophers were were dealing with, and um, a large proportion of them, you know, took Sarhawardi's path and said that is the way to uh, discover important truth.
and these were indeed important truths, aren't they? That that you gave us a, a very helpful sort of uh, metaphor, a very helpful example of finding one's way to the hotel. But but of course, what the stakes for sort of idea are the you know absolute knowledge of the purpose of life, who we are, who God is, what our relationship is, where the universe fits in between in all of this and and everything in it. So it's extremely important and as, as important as any questions one one could ask, I, I suppose, within philosophy or indeed within religion. And as you mentioned earlier, when I asked you to sum up his his epistemology, his, his understanding of, of of how one has knowledge, and you said quite simply, he says, you see it and then you know it's true. And in a sense, that's a, that's a very, I think, sort of helpful way of, of understanding his idea of el-Muhuzuri, knowledge by presence. It's knowledge that's experienced, you've seen it, but going back to our earlier point about mystical experience or indeed dreams, those for him are valid things that you have seen. I mean, the notion of, I suppose, in Islamic thought of mushahidat, that, you know, what we might see as, as, uh, as what mystical experience is, but that literally means witnessing, things you have seen. So yeah. for sort of added the key point is, yes, you know knowledge because you've seen it, but the realm of seeing isn't only physical, it is in the Greek sense, I suppose, metaphysical, beyond the physics as well, through mystical experience, dreams, part of what he calls their knowledge by experience, and not just rational, deductive knowledge, the other form of knowledge that he calls al-Mahzuri, or al-Mahusuli, I should say, which is then, as you pointed out, could be full of many perfectly logical, but actually false steps, false premises, and so on. Coming to this other final issue then that you've you've hinted at here and there, John, of his legacy in, in later times. You, you mentioned, I mean, your allusion to the, the scientific revolution, of course, is the point that many Muslim modernists, of course, made, the many Muslim reformists and their critiques of mysticism, Sufism, and so on, and and, and many of more other mystical philosophers than sort of Adi. But as you hinted, whether with the 17th century master of the school of Isfahan, which also spread to India, Mullah Sadra, or indeed others, including perhaps the unlikely candidate one would have thought of the, the brother of the current uh, president of the Islamic Republic of Iran, have kept alive sort of Adi's tradition or indeed his school, and not just in a sort of fossilized way, they've continued to think with him and perhaps even think beyond him. So could you give us a sense as we wrap up, John, of how in the centuries after his death, sort of had his influence uh, worked throughout the Islamic world and what's his legacy insofar as there is one in the present day? Well, it's a complicated question. One I talked about some, which has to do with philosophy. Essentially, he's kind of like a figure akin to Kant in the Western tradition. You know, before Kant, people sort of did metaphysics in sort of a logical way. Kant said, I ah, can't do that. It's not, not going to work. And then, um, you know, everybody had to take account of that, even if they they didn't agree with it. So you get every, you know, everything from uh, Hegel to Marx to Sartre. Uh, but nobody's doing philosophy like Descartes or Leibniz was doing before, right. before Kant. And he's kind of the, the, the same way. Now, Islamic philosophy did not have a radical break in the sense that, let's say, we talk about the Cartesian revolution and Western philosophy. But uh, Sohrawardi was one of the key figures in the transition between the earlier period, which was essentially very Aristotelian, and the later period, which um, mainly, I mean, the big change was the role of mysticism. So, you know, this debate uh, goes on. Um, the, you know, I mentioned, I think, with the Alam al-Mathal, uh, what later philosophers did with that to, uh, to solve problems of eschatology, the end of the world. The problem for the earlier philosophies philosophers, people like uh, Farabi or uh, Averroes was, they, they were perfectly happy to explain things like the afterlife and the things that the Quran said about the events, but they said, oh, these are all symbols. Mm. You know, we, we can just reduce them to philosophical concepts and that's the end of, end of the story. And that really was not very satisfactory uh, for a pious Muslim. Um, you know, be able to say that uh, 
the Quran is the product of a man with a remarkable intuitive mind and a remarkable ability and rhetoric that that just didn't go and that tradition pretty well uh, died out but on the other hand once you had the Alamothal you could put all of these things that were impossible to explain physically into the Alamothal into this world uh, of ideas a world of the, the world of images I and mean, strange things happen there all these you know these um dramatic things that are going to happen at the end of time and so on they can all be sort of put there and become plausible so that's one thing uh, the um there there's another um um area which has to do with um with persianness and iranian this and this has gotten a lot of attention from scholars uh, rather more than i think it deserves frankly but um, um i'm kind of in the minority in, in this view and that has that has to do with um uh, persian and persian nationalism so as i mentioned so Harari wrote these allegories and they're lovely they're in this beautiful simple persian um persian literature tended to be rather rather complex you couldn't understand a lot of poetry sometimes unless you understood that it was an allusion to what somebody before you did with a line of Hafez's poetry uh Zerberati wasn't writing like that and um if these works were not well known they're only a handful of manuscripts uh and they were basically rediscovered in the 20th century at a time when there was a um, a movement of literary reform in, um, uh, in Iran of uh, getting rid of um, the sort of very complicated um, literary tradition. The Persians love poetry and they love their poets and the, but there comes a point when this process of poet commenting on poet coming on poet gets to incomprehensible at which point you have to start over and Sohrawardi's the rediscovery of Sohrawardi was part of that starting over uh, so uh, some of these things the kind of things that you read in your high school Persian literature class so he's he's known um, that way then there's a nationalist aspect to it um 20th century Iran prior to the revolution um, tended to look away from um, the Islamic, the Shiite tradition. If you look at Iranian postage stamps before the Islamic revolution in 1979, uh, there's almost nothing having to do with religion. It's all ancient Persia, um, pictures of the king, of course, and um occasionally philosophers so like Avicenna uh, so on uh and um one of the ways that Sahrawardi has been interpreted is that he is someone who is attempting to revive the wisdom of ancient Persia um there's some allusion he makes some references to this in his works um not that much but uh these were seized on by uh, particularly a man named Henri Corbin, French Orientalist, um, and taken as, um, you know, the core of a thing that he's reviving um, uh, the ancient Persian tradition of wisdom. In fact, there was a Zoroastrian sect in India in the early modern period that sort of took him as uh, part of their scripture for exactly that reason. Uh, so this becomes a kind of part of you know the nationalist narrative of of iran he's somebody that fits in and he was somebody that also that you know was you know of um you know respectable both to the secular nationalists because he was a philosopher and a writer of good persian and to the religious scholars who you know studied philosophy um, and in fact, I was reading with one of my graduate students a letter that Khomeini wrote to Gorbachev 
um, in which, among other things, he recommends that Gorbachev appoint a committee of scholars who would study, among other things, Sohoardi. Extraordinary. <laughs> oh. Well, that's really given us a, a sense, John, of the unexpected and, and, and I dare say ironic afterlives of a philosopher. We might have perhaps anticipated that people would continue to read his philosophical works or might have hoped so, but the the, the much shorter and in pre-modern times kind of almost overlooked Persian, uh, short Persian allegories, as you mentioned, and their influence and indeed the claiming of him for a sort of a nationalist school of reviving ancient Persia is certainly unexpected. Professor John Walbridge, thank you so much for talking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Well, thank you, Niall. It's been a pleasure. It's always nice to talk about Sorkawardi. One doesn't always have an audience. Da 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 da